So we are going to continue on in the year that I was in Germany and what that looked like. So here we go. Welcome to the Mental Health for Holiness podcast, a podcast for women who want to find hope in their mental sufferings and improve their psychological well-being so they can love Jesus more. I'm your host, Talia Cruzi, and I'm a wife, a mom, and I've been managing bipolar disorder for over a decade while also continuing on my own journey towards holiness. And I am so grateful to be able to coach other women to do the same. I want to thank you so much for taking the time to listen, and I hope you enjoy today's episode. All right, so let's go. Let's see here. Where was I at? I last time we left off, I was in the convent in Germany. So I'll take a couple steps back. So I joined the convent, and telling my family was very, very difficult. Um, getting ready to go and live in the convent wasn't very difficult because I guess I was thinking, you know, well, this is just the next step, and. That's kind of my temperament. I just go, just do the next step. And it was also kind of my MO, if you will. I was very much in the habit of just changing my external circumstances when I didn't like them. And I still struggle with that sometimes. And I always, always just under the thought, like, you can just change everything. Like, if you don't like it, change it. If you don't like the job, get a different job. If you don't like where you're living situation, then, then move. If you don't like the college you're at, then go to a different college. And that's kind of what I had done. And yet wherever you go, there you are. And I also knew that I craved order and I craved stability and I craved holiness and I craved purpose. And it just seems like, well, I'm kind of failing at all those things. So I'll go to the convent and that will straighten me out. And uh, it's a sure ticket for holiness, right? That's kind of what I was going through in my head um, when I look back. So I went to the mother house, which was in Michigan for this religious order, and I did therapy for a month every day. It was quite intense um, and yet very necessary. And so I would, that was my basic, you know, um, assignment for the month was to go to my appointment every day, do my homework. And then I had other sometimes videos to watch or um, books to read. And I read the Bipolar Disorder uh, Survival Guide. I think that's what it's called. And so that was the first book I read. And it was very eye-opening to me on just what this disorder was. But it also opened up a lot of questions (laughs) for myself. Um, So I did that. I... Uh, the rest of the time I kind of did various projects like that needed to be done for the sisters. I mowed the lawn and I cleaned and I organized different living areas and I prayed with the sisters and I went on lots of walks. Um, For sure. The biggest thing was that I loved right away. was just the simplicity. The simplicity was, it was just this initial feeling of like this enormous weight off of my shoulders so I didn't think about what I was going to wear. I, did, I wasn't in school. I didn't have a job. I didn't have a phone. I didn't have my own money. I didn't have a computer. I didn't have my own laptop. I didn't have anything. Like it was just, I literally woke up and it was put on my uniform. I had to wear, um, well, I didn't have a habit necessarily, but I guess the, the code of dress was a white button down shirt and a black dress or black skirt long black skirt. It was, it was not the best, but it's okay. Uh, and so that was the month of August, uh, 2010. 
And then beginning in September, I got on a plane and I flew to Frankfurt where Sister Mary Helena uh, met me and picked me up. And this woman, Sister Mary Helena, was going to have a very big impact in my life over the next year. She was my appointed formator. So if you can imagine like living with your life coach, like your very own personal life coach for the year, right? I was the only person, I was the only prepostulant, and and her job was literally to like help form me in a very human level. And that required a bit of breaking, <laughs> and she did it very lovingly and gently, but also surely and steadfastly, and she was able to give me tough love when I needed it, and yet she was also very, very tender. So during this year, I really worked on finding a good regimen uh, for medicine and more so than just the antidepressants that I had kind of tried. I was on um, a lot of different things. I was lithium and then um, usually you're on some type of anti, uh, anti-convulsant sometimes or uh, mood stabilizer. Um, moods, I think lithium was the biggest mood stabilizer and then I was on different things and an antidepressant on top of that. So uh, really navigating what worked, what didn't work, all the side effects. Ugh, it was it was yucky. It was not my favorite, all that stuff. Um, the side effects of some drugs were just so numbing that you just felt like a zombie. Like you're just like, well, I'm just not going to feel anything. And then um, there, there was just these side effects of extreme exhaustion. Granted, <laughs> granted, I'm also living in the convent, which this particular community had a lot of let's just say like go-getters. Like there were a lot of doctors and lawyers they, and, and um, professors. They worked on a professional level out in the community. And they just seemed to think that everyone could go off of like six, six and a half hours of sleep. Like that was really, that was plenty. <laughs> um, now when I was in Germany, it wasn't as bad. Um, I believe my time at the mother house in Michigan after that was a bit worse. So, you know, you'd have lights out at this time and you get up at this time. So I think at the mother house, it was like lights out would be 10, 10, 30, and you'd be getting up between 4.30, 4.45 for prayers at 5.15, 5.30, something like that. And then you would have these holy hours during the day. You usually had like a personal holy hour just by yourself. And then you had a holy hour with the community and you're just expected to like sit in a chapel by yourself being quiet and praying and every day it was more so just like this battle to stay awake so um it was just it was such a struggle and then there was the day the community holy hours and if I was in charge of leading the rosary it was like oh lord Jesus help me please because there are times where you know you're starting out and you're just like hail Mary full of grace the Lord is <laughs> and you're like oh okay don't do that and that's why we kneel during the rosary to stay awake so um okay but going back uh it didn't help that my sleep was already like just so messed up to begin with so that all around was just very difficult but it I did get in, reintroduced to living a, a routine life and living was just the pace was slower. It was much quieter. Um, you know, where I was used to like going for runs and always having my headphones and like every time I drove somewhere I needed like music. And this was like before podcasts were like a big thing or anything. So, you know, and I don't even, we had like iPods, I think still. And, um, 
so having my music out, I, it, that was a huge thing. And just now I was going for walks without any headphones. And it was just quiet. I remember taking a walk every day after our noon meal. So the noon meal was the was the hot main meal of the day. And then um, there was literally a castle on top of the hill that was probably a 20-minute walk, like one way. And uh, so I would, I would go for a walk after the noon meal every day up to there. And I would practice my German during that time because I talked to myself all the time anyway. So I would just try and practice speaking to myself in German. Uh, and where I was at, this was a very rural uh, place in Germany, right on the Bavarian border. And I lived in an old orphanage in between two little villages that were literally probably half a mile away from each other. Yet they were like separate. Um, it was very picturesque. It was very beautiful. And uh, ba- really a lot like what you think of like the German countryside. It was, it was, it was exactly that. And um, so I had lots of lessons uh, I had private catechesis with a priest who served the sisters and I took a German class that I would take my bike and the train to when the weather was nice. And uh, the hardest part was probably being in a place where English was not the first language. I had never lived anywhere before where that was the case. And obviously just the culture was really different. Um, they don't celebrate Thanksgiving and they don't have peanut butter and they drink carbonated water with everything. And it was it was different. I do remember getting quite homesick at times. And it, and that's a lot for me to say because this is the girl who went from like small town Minnesota living on a farm to living in Miami like overnight. So uh, I was quite adventurous. So it's, it's um, but you know, yeah, I got homesick and it was my first year not ever going home for Christmas. And I remember that very vividly. Uh it was very difficult, but it also allowed for this like detachment from the Americanized, or I should say, world, um, just secular Christmas, and not, and not that everything about that is bad, but it just really allowed me to really retreat with Jesus and the Holy Family. And when I say that, you know, that does sound amazing. But it was also really hard, and I really did crave putting on some sweats and crawling up with a blanket on the couch and watching Home Alone with family and friends. Uh, but thankfully, this was Germany, so they know how to do Christmas very well. And there was, uh, you know, trees everywhere and the German markets. Uh, you know, there were a couple of sisters who went to mines every week to work there and go to school there. And so sometimes I would be able to join them. And mines is a very uh, wonderful old German city and just being able to take part in that in that culture was really great as well. Uh, my parents did come and visit me for a week or so in early March, so that was really nice. But other than that, I didn't see any of my other family or friends for like 10 months. Um, and it was really good. And I learned a lot about myself. I processed my childhood a lot and my relationships. Because here's the thing, you know, leaving home to go to college, I think it's like more traumatic than we, than I had realized. I was so excited to go to college and like break away and then you do it. And then all of a sudden you're just like, I just want to go home. <laughs> I, I just, you know, you don't realize like how awesome, you know, your childhood was. And it was just, I was very grateful for that. And so, but just processing like, okay, what does this mean to grow up, to be an adult, to not be under my parents' roof anymore? And, you know, learning a lot about boundaries. Uh, I read 
Feeling Good by Dr. Burns, which really changed my life a lot in allowing me to realize that I have control over my thoughts. Uh, I learned about cognitive distortions and I felt like I was able to discover where this like background noise was coming from. This this voice inside my head that was like always talking to me, but it was it was like trying to pinpoint. I'll, I'll I'll compare it to like trying to find a cricket in your basement, right? Like you know there's a cricket here because you can hear it, and you're like, all right, this cricket needs to get out of here. Like I cannot sleep. This cricket needs to go, and so you follow the sound, and it it's immensely easier to do so without anything distracting you, right? It's, it's easier to find this voice inside your head when that is your main goal is to be like, where is this voice? What is it saying? Where did it come from? And so if we're going to go with, let's go with the cricket analogy, right? So you're going downstairs to find this cricket that is keeping you up and you're in the basement. And if it's a big empty space, right? There's, there's not going to be a whole lot of places to hide. So it's really easy to find this. It can be easy to find this cricket. Like I'm going to, I'm going to find you. Right. And, but when you compare that with like, if you go downstairs to find the cricket and this room, the basement is just full of junk and stuff and it's everywhere. All of a sudden trying to find this cricket is just kind of a pain in the butt and you're tripping over stuff and it's hard to move. And then maybe you find this cricket but the darn thing hops over everywhere and you can't catch it because you have all this stuff blocking you. And, you know, that was the beauty of being somewhere so, so different, right? With no job and no school and no money and no phone and nothing. It was, it was so good. It was like being in this empty basement being like, I'm going to find you. I'm going to, I'm going to figure out what you are, what, what thing on repeat is in my head telling me in the background, all this stuff. And, uh, you know, now catching a cricket, finding the cricket is one thing, but catching the cricket in an empty space is still hard because the darn things are so jumpy. And so it can be kind of this elusive game, right? And again, finding that source of that inner voice and what it is saying to you all the time is is hard. It seems like it should be a simple thing because it's on repeat all the time, but it's so sub, you know, wired deep into our subconscious that it's it takes a lot of digging to get there. And that's hard to do when you have regular life to take care of, right? When you're still working and you're, you have kids and you're going to school and all that stuff, it's, it's easy to avoid and it's easy to just like, well, whatever, I don't have time for this. So I think uh, it's extremely important for people to really be aware of the thoughts that they have on repeat in their head all day, because when thoughts are on repeat, they become hardwired beliefs. And, you know, there's a difference between thoughts and beliefs. And that's another episode, but that's where, you know, this idea of limiting beliefs um, comes up. So coming, all these limiting beliefs come to the surface. And so working through them with a therapist, with my, with Sister Mary Helena, my formator, it was just, it was, it was very good, but it's, it's, it's also hard work because um, it's much easier to just avoid your, avoid that and just distract yourself to to no end, but without anything to distract myself with. I mean, I could have still distracted myself with like, I don't know, theological reading and stuff like that, but <laughs> then you're like, this isn't any easier. So, um, you know, working through that sometimes 
we don't know where we get all our, where do these beliefs come from? Where do these thoughts come from? And a lot of times they come from our culture, our environment, our family, in all these subtle ways that are on repeat. And um, so that has a lot to do with it. That's where I love working as a coach because I get to help people reflect on why they believe the things that they do and helping them to articulate, you know, what is, what do you want your life to look like? Like put it in words, get it out of your head, put it in words. You know, you want more routine? Okay, well, what is keeping you from living a more routine life? Because we can put it on paper and it can seem so easy. And yet most of the time it's our thoughts and our beliefs, our beliefs that we have in our head that are actually keeping us from living the life that we are called to. So, but if we can practice the skill of actually articulating the thoughts that we have in our head and doing it in a safe place where we can be vulnerable and we can be validated in our thoughts rather than just being told like, yeah, well, everyone thinks that. Or, well, just stop thinking that. Stop stop thinking like that. Just stop it. And (laughs) as if it's really easy to just stop thinking that. It's not that easy, right? But again, living with these sisters for this year in Germany was so crucial because they loved me so hard and they weren't afraid to say, you need to work on this. And they, they didn't let me off the hook with everything, right? Which is kind of what I felt like out in college or in the world, like, well, you're in charge of your own life, you know, and you can do whatever you want. And, you know, I don't want to offend you. So, you know, I mean, do what you do you. And, and it's like, yeah, I'm trying to do me and it's not working out. So I need some help. And so, you know, now, and I laugh now thinking about like the different things that I did or said, um, going into the beginning of that year. And I think the big thing, just remembering that I had always been really bad at receiving like criticism of any kind. So that was, that was, that was where a lot of the pain came from was like, I don't like receiving criticism. I don't like being told that I need to work on this. I was extremely defensive and you just, you couldn't tell me anything and I knew everything. And, you know, so, cause let's keep in mind, I had a plan. Like this whole year in Germany was not my plan. And I thought I was going to be like so behind and going to medical school and being a doctor and whatever. But thank God, thank God I also had the awareness to realize that whatever I was doing wasn't serving me very well. Like I could know everything and I had this plan and I knew everything and I knew everything (laughs) and I knew what I was going to do. So you couldn't tell me anything. And yet I had to go, is this, how is this working out for me? It's not working out very well because I'm not doing very well, right? And that's when it's important to be honest and say, right? No, I'm not doing very well. So I must not know everything. And perhaps somebody else could help me. And so being in the convent really helped me to practice this skill of humility on a very human level. It wasn't like some supernatural. Um, humility, but just right coming to the to terms that wow, yeah, I don't know everything, and other people know some more things than I do in some areas of life, and so I want to learn from them. And 
that truth really, you know, building up that skill, building up that truth, making that become the hard, the hardwired belief that, yeah, I don't do everything great. And yeah, I'm going to screw up. That changed my attitude and, and really changed my life in, in, a, in a way that uh, I was no longer like on eggshells trying to be so perfect and worrying about what everybody thought all the time. Because guess what? Yeah, I'm, I'm going to screw up sometimes. And I'm, you know, instead of being defensive about it and being whatever, I could just go, yeah, you're right. I could do that better, you know, and life moves on. And it didn't have to be like this weird, dramatic, embarrassing moment in my life every time I screwed up. And I didn't have to think like, well, now I just have to hide from these people. I can never know them again because my reputation is ruined because I am no longer like admired and held on a pedestal, you know, like, right. You have to let people see that you're, you're going to screw up just like everyone else. So it's extremely life altering in that way. And I learned to laugh at myself a lot more. I, which is also a very important skill to laugh at yourself and in fact, if you can laugh at yourself, you're going to be able to uh, receive criticism so much more, like more joyfully, you know, right? And um, because you're just going to realize like, yeah, I'm not perfect. And that is kind of funny that I, you know, um, thought that th- that was the way you were supposed to do it or <laughs> whatever. And it wasn't. So um so that was that was really great. And, you know, living a daily rhythm with a community that kept me accountable. Oh, the accountability was something that I, I hadn't realized that I craved so, so much, you know, because I didn't have any accountability in, in college, basically. Um, I mean, yeah, you have your like your Newman group or your Bible study every week, maybe. But I didn't have good. I, I didn't have like there were there were years I had really good roommates and there were years I didn't have really good roommates. But either way, there was still this whole like you do you and I'm going to do me and I don't know. Plus, I was just defensive. So whatever. Again, um, you can't really probably tell me much anyway. So uh, but this kind of unsaid accountability that comes with living in community and having a, a, a standard of living was. Um, what was was something I actually really did crave that I didn't realize. And, um, you know, I didn't have anyone else because before I didn't have anyone else like checking in and seeing how I was doing in my pursuit of holiness and growing in virtue. But with these sisters, I did. I had accountability in lots of forms. And I not only had somebody outrightly guiding me and leading me in formation, but I also had all of these living examples around me that like just had this, they they were the real influencers in in my life, like much more than how somebody on social media influences you, quote unquote, um, because I lived with them and we saw each other's faults and we loved each other through them. And, um, yeah, it was it was it was really great to learn in such a real way, which also was um important for me to realize that guess what you don't learn everything by 
reading a book and taking a test on it. Um, I was very uh, used to performing well in that way, but that is not the highest, you know, test of aptitude in life is taking a test on it. So that was, you know, a good lesson for me to learn that you can know everything, but if you're not living it, you don't actually really know it or you haven't mastered it. Let's just say that you haven't mastered it. And um, now granted, I also want to say like these sisters and nuns and religious people, they're all human. Sometimes when we, you know, we don't have access, we don't see sisters very often. Maybe they're not in our communities or whatever. We can really think like, oh, they're just so holy and they're just saintly and like, oh my goodness, I could never be them, but they're really human, like just you and me. Um, and so, but they are always trying, right? They're, they're very, they're trying to grow in virtue just like you are. And so the environment was just a total 180 from what it had been during college and, and up to this point before I joined the convent. And so that was really great. So I'm going to leave it at that, and we can continue next month. That's probably a more realistic um, rate, it seems like, that for, for putting out episodes, given that I'm busy with uh, four little kids and coaching and all that stuff. So um, I'll be talking about my discernment out of religious life next time, how that affected my mental health, what that looked like. So I hope that this has given you some good food for thought and God bless your day. I hope you enjoyed this episode of Mental Health for Holiness. If you did, I would greatly appreciate it if you left a rating and review and shared it with anyone who popped into your mind while you were listening. I truly believe that this conversation on mental health is really so necessary to our culture at large. And so I would be so grateful if you could help be a part of spreading the message. I also want to encourage your participation in the conversation. I would appreciate any feedback or if you have your own mental health story that you would like to share and how it affected your own journey towards holiness, feel free to reach out. You can contact me at mentalhealthforholiness.com slash contact. And know that I am praying for each and every one of you.